Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Good afternoon and welcome to Concord Matters on this chilly Tuesday, January 16th. It's very cold here in St. Louis, but we're in now the second half of January, and on average that is the coldest time of the year in uh, in the upper Midwest here. We wonder what it's like where you are. We have listeners all around the world. We're on worldwide, kfuo.org, where you can listen to us anytime, day or night, all around the world. And we also have our programs archived at kfuo.org. I'm your host for this program. I'm Pastor Charles Henriksen, the pastor of St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Bonterre, Missouri. If you'd like to find out what's going on there, you can go to our website, stmatthewbt.org. We're in the Book of Concord, the uh, Lutheran confessional documents that have been collected into one book, the Book of Concord, meaning our agreement or harmony in Christian doctrine based on God's holy word. Uh, So that's what we're working our way through on this program. We're in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession today, on the articles on the church. And if you'd like to join our program with your comments or questions, you certainly may do so. We have a toll-free number all across North America. That number is 800-730-2727. Again, 800-730-2727. And then locally here in St. Louis, our phone number is area code 314 8210850 8210850 again 3148210850 you can also email us your comments or questions during the program our email address is kfuo@kfuo.org in the studio with me today are two guests who have been on this program before and so you may recognize their voices and i get to see their friendly faces here first of all uh, pastor Warren Worth the pastor of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Arnold, Missouri. Welcome back, Arnold, uh, Warren. I so, don't, don't call you Arnold. Do you ever get that? <laughs> no, that's a first. Right. So uh, good to be with you again, my brother. All right. And tell us what's going on at Good Shepherd in Arnold, Missouri. Well, our worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. Sunday school and Bible class are at 1030. And we have a winter fest coming up on the last Friday of the month. That'll be a kind of a fun event for food and fun for the whole family. I've been to that before. It's a a fun evening. And we hope you'll join us again this year. It'll be on the 26th. It'll be January 26th at 6 p.m. And we will eat and then we'll play games and it's a lot of fun. And is there a website where people can find out more about Good Shepherd and Arnold? Indeed. It's goodshepherdarnold.org. All right. Very good. And then our other guest, one of my old seminary classmates, Paul Landgraf. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. It's nice to be here. And you do a dual parish, and tell us about those two congregations. Yeah, about an hour, um, hour and a half west of here is a small town, Drake, Missouri. 
and St. John Lutheran Church is there. It's off on Dirt Road, actually, and uh, but it's nice, nice people, nice, nice community of of Christians gathered together. Uh, Eight thirty on Sunday morning when it's not bitterly cold. <laughs> And then uh, the second church is about 20 minutes west of there. It's uh, at small, small town, Freedom, Missouri. And Pilgrim Lutheran Church meets at Freedom, Missouri. And then it's a 1030 service there. We're going to talk a little bit about freedom uh, today <laughs> in the church and uh, the limits of that and uh, uh, what are the boundaries of that freedom. So we're going to be talking about the church today. And uh, we're picking it up in Articles 7 and 8 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. As always, just to give you a little uh, a framework here, the word apology does not mean we're sorry we wrote the Augsburg Confession, but on the contrary, it is a spirited defense, a thorough defense of the Augsburg Confession over against uh, objections that were raised by the Roman Catholic Party in their confutation. The Augsburg Confession was presented in 1530, then the Roman Catholic theologians came back with their confutation, and then uh, the Lutherans came back in 1531 with the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, in which they address uh, objections that the Roman Catholic theologians had raised. And so uh, Articles 7 and 8 in the uh, Augsburg Confession are grouped together here, since they're both related to the topic of the Church. Now, we're going to pick it up today in Article 29, so, but maybe just to set the stage, let me just briefly read. They're short in the Augsburg Confession. Um, and actually, I'm going to go to Article 8 first, since that's what, they're, what the discussion is, where we'll pick it up, and then go to Article 7. So going back to the original Augsburg Confession, just briefly, Article 8. Uh, strictly speaking, the church is the congregation of saints and true believers. However, because many hypocrites and evil persons are mingled within them in this life... It is lawful to use sacraments administered by evil men. According to the saying of Christ, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Both the sacraments and word are effective because of Christ's institution and command, even if they are administered by evil men. Our churches condemn the Donatists and others like them who deny that it is lawful to use the ministry of evil men in the church and who think that the ministry of evil men is not useful and is ineffective. That's we're coming into the midst of that discussion here in the apology, where Melanchthon, the author of the apology, is uh, taking on this argument here. So, uh, uh, picking this up, let's just ask first Warren and Paul, um, how would you set the stage for what we're about to get into? Okay, setting the stage. So, what we're about to get into is a whole matter of what does it mean to be the church? Who's included in the church? And how does God work in his church through the means of grace? And to what extent, you know, is it entirely a matter of God's grace? God builds his church. It's his means of grace that does it. And they're effective apart from man's worthiness. Mm-hmm. Or is it a matter of uh, the church depends upon human beings and their worthiness and their preparation, including that of the ministers? Or do they have to be uh, holy and perfect people, or if they're not, uh, does God's word amount to nothing? Does it accomplish nothing? And what would be the objection that the Roman Catholic theologians were raising against 
this Article 8 in particular, where the Lutherans are saying that the church is the congregation of saints and true believers, although there are some hypocrites and evil persons mixed in, and that uh, the sacraments and the word are effective even if administered by evil men. What would the Roman Catholic theologians be arguing that's wrong with that? Either one of you. Well, they talk about having the. They'll talk about different customs and the the particulars. And what what I was the point I was going to make is when you when you say the word church, you just get a, a whole wide range of of definitions, and you could and you could focus on people. You could focus on. God and, and those three. That's so it the, seems we're talking about a narrow sense and a, a broader sense. Correct. The Lutherans are saying the church in the proper sense is the believers, those right. who truly are believing in Christ. And we acknowledge that in the broader sense, the church, the outward church, Visible could, include, could include people who are not really believers, but have some outward association with the organized church. Is that sort of Yes, that, exactly so. Yeah. All right. So let's pick it up then with the new material in the Apology. We're using the reader's edition of Concordia, the Book of Concord, and picking it up at paragraph 29. And I'll read all of paragraph 29, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. In the Confession, there he's talking about the Augsburg Confession, the articles I just read, articles 7 and 8. In the Confession, we say clearly enough that we condemn the Donatists and Wycliffites. They thought that people sinned when they received the sacraments from the unworthy in the church. These points seem for the present to be enough for the defense of our description of the church. Neither do we see how, when the church, properly called, is named the body of Christ, it should be described differently than we have described it. For it is clear that the wicked belong to the devil's kingdom and body. He drives them on and holds them captive. Such things are clearer than the light of noonday. However, if the adversaries continue to pervert them, we will not hesitate to reply at greater length. Uh, gentlemen, who were the Donatists? They seem to be the one mentioned both in the AC and in the Apology. The Donatists were people that lived uh, that about 300 years after the birth of Christ and were especially active in North Africa and had especially this particular feature that, that come, there were other Mm-hmm. Things in which they were in error as well. But this was the one that comes up again and again, that they taught that uh, sacraments administered by wicked men are ineffective and invalid. And therefore, they could say the whole Roman church, for example, was uh, invalid and um, only they were the true believers because everybody else had wicked priests. And if, if they were wicked and impious men, then they could not administer valid sacraments. And likewise, with the Wycliffeites, who are much later, obviously that's more closer to the time of the Reformation, like the 1300s in England, where you have John Wycliffe and his followers. And uh, one of his teachings was similar in that uh, sacraments are not going to be effective if they're administered by wicked people. So what that did was kind of transfer the power of Christ's word and sacraments to the minister, rather than in Christ's empowering word, even though administered by people who were wrong. And that, so that would be the the answer of the Lutherans to those who would hold such views, whether they were Roman Catholic or uh, or otherwise. That they might be 
other Protestants. But if their idea is that it depends upon the piety of the man administering the sacraments, you're taking away from what God has instituted and mm-hmm. failing to recognize that the sacraments have their power and our effectiveness because of the word of Christ and not because of the man and his holiness. Likewise, uh, even Judas Iscariot, for example, was sent by Christ to preach mm-hmm. and and to cast out demons and so forth. So Christ was able to work even through someone like Judas Iscariot yeah. because uh, because it's the word of Christ and his power at work, not man's holiness and uh, so forth that make make the means of grace effective. You know, I had a laugh out loud moment last week in listening to this program when, when Jonathan Fisk and Sean Smith were on and Sean was reading the preceding paragraph and he ended uh, with the uh, words where he's talking about the same, uh, Melanchthon's talking about the same thing and he's talking about that the unworthy still represent the person of Christ, do not represent their own persons and then there's this parenthetical comment here in the uh, Apology, where it says, even Judas was sent to preach. And Jonathan Fisk said, I wish, Sean, I had been at your ordination, you know, when they give the little blessing on the new, newly installed. And he was saying, if I came, I'd lay my hand on your head and say, as Melanchthon says in the apology, even Judas was sent to preach. (laughs) The The point is, you don't want to have a Judas in there. But hey, we want guys who have a, a, a good life, who are uh, without reproach. But even if they, even if they're scoundrels, their their ministry still has effect. Paul. Yeah. Well, what if uh, Judas was baptizing some of those, some of the followers, of, and then all of a sudden, you know, it would call the... into question and uncertainty the effectiveness right. of Christ's sacrament. And so it's so wonderful that we can be sure of our salvation because it doesn't depend on us or on the minister who ministered to us. So I can be sure that my baptism is valid because it's Christ's baptism and whoever it was that was sent by Christ is acting in his stead on his authority by his command and his words make baptism effective. Likewise, when I receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ from uh, a pastor, I can be sure that it's Christ who's giving me his body and blood for the forgiveness of my sins because the sacrament depends upon his word, Mm -hmm. not the holiness of the man. And likewise, the holy absolution. When a man says, I forgive you in the name of Jesus, you know, I can be sure that Jesus is the one forgiving my sins, Mm -hmm. even if the man himself is a rascal. You know, it just occurred to me, this is kind of the flip side of receptionism. You know, when we say about the communicant, Mm -hmm. uh, well, suppose somebody comes up to the communion rail and they aren't really believing. Does that invalidate Christ's sacrament? No, it does not. They, they may not be receiving in faith the benefits of it, but it's still Christ's sacrament because of his instituting word. Right. Yeah, very good. All right, uh, let's go on then with paragraph... Um, by the way, let me also mention, if you have this reader's edition of the Book of Concord and you come across a term like the Donatus... There are some helpful things in the back, indices, like there's one on persons and groups. So I'm looking at my edition right now, on page 687 in the back. And so for Donatus, it says, see, Donatus, the guy who started this, and it's the next entry. And that uh, gives you a little paragraph there explaining who the Donatists were. All right, paragraph 30. 
when it, when Melanchthon mentions the adversary, he's, he's talking about the Roman Catholic theologians who had written this confutation. All right, the adversaries. So we here is we've concluded this part on Article Eight. Now we're going back to Article Seven of the of the Augsburg Confession, uh, Paragraph Thirty. The adversaries also condemn the part of Article Seven in which we said that quote. For the true unity of the church, it is enough to agree about the doctrine of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. It is not necessary that human traditions, that is, rites or ceremonies instituted by men, should be the same everywhere. End of quote. Here they distinguish between universal and particular rites, meaning the adversaries do. They approve our article if it is understood concerning particular rites, they do not approve it concerning universal rights. And I should point out it's the word rights here is R-I-T-E-S, and we'll discuss that in a moment. We do not completely understand what the adversaries mean. Well, if Melanchthon didn't understand it, <laughs> we're, I guess we're in big trouble. Uh, we are speaking of true spiritual unity. Without faith in the heart or righteousness of heart before God, such unity cannot exist. Similarity of human ceremonies, whether universal or particular, is not necessary. The righteousness of faith is not a righteousness bound to certain traditions. The righteousness of the law was bound of the law was bound to the mosaic ceremonies, but righteousness of the heart is a matter that enlivens the heart. Human traditions, whether they are universal or particular, contribute nothing to this new life. Neither are traditions effects of the Holy Spirit as our self-control, patience, the fear of God, love for one's neighbor, and the works of love. So, gentlemen, uh, a few terms are being mentioned here, uh, particularly rites. We're going to hear the word rites, ceremonies, traditions. Ordinances. Ordinances. Uh, Let's unpack each one of those terms a little bit. there's a little nuance. Sometimes we use rites or ceremonies uh, interchangeably, but there is a little nuance of difference in the narrow sense between these. When we talk about rites, R-I-T-E-S, not R-I-G-H-T-S, when we talk about rites in the church, Paul Langraff, what are we talking about? Well, I, what comes to mind for me is you think of the rite of baptism, the, the service, the way it is laid out to have a baptism. Okay. So you you could say, well... Emergency baptism is one thing, but if you're if it's a normal Sunday yeah. and you have baby what to order baptize, you're following yeah, yeah, to do it, uh, Warren. Yeah, in the same way, I would I would say too when we're talking uh, liturgy, the condu- conduct of the service and the way we do our worship, uh, and the things attendant there too. So uh, a little bit later on, they will. Uh, specify that we follow the mass, mm-hmm. so we so the Lutherans didn't reject the common order of service of the mass. They they preserved it, they cleaned it up, yes. but they still held to that. How about uh, things such as uh, worshiping on Sunday? You know, something that's been received. It's a tradition going back to the beginning of the church, indeed. And likewise, they can deal with holy days. Like, do we celebrate? Easter? Do we celebrate Christmas? And when do you celebrate Easter? That yeah. become that became That'll an issue. Bring up, be brought up later when right. when that was a point that was to be uh, worked out. But the way I understand, in the narrow sense, rites and ceremonies. The distinction between rites and ceremonies. Rites are the things that are said. Ceremonies are the things that are done. Oh, okay. Uh, when you look at the divine service in the hymnal, 
You say the black and you do the red. Okay. <laughs> you don't follow what I'm saying? Sure. Certainly. So the rites are the words and the and the ceremonies are the actions or the gestures or the motions, that sort of thing, if you want to be that precise about it. But sometimes the terms are used, as Paul said, the rites would include the whole thing, the order of service for whatever it is, including the the text, the words, and the actions. And well, and they go on in a little while to explain even vestments, things like vestments yeah. and candles. So Traditions. Uh, tra- that, that goes with it, too. So they would say it is one thing if you, you don't have to wear Germanic dress, perhaps you can wear French <laughs> vestments or something. So th- that's an example that they give uh, a little bit later in the same discussion. All right. So we're talking about rites and ceremonies and traditions, and the Lutherans are saying they don't have to be exactly the same to have unity in the church. Uh, and when the Roman Catholic theologians uh, are talking about uh, uh, universal rights and particular rights and lengths, we're not sure what they mean. Maybe they didn't explain that. What are the universal rights and what are the particular rights? I guess it could be things like uh, what should be done all around the church and then maybe some minor variations by locality, you know, that uh, in, uh, in, in northern Germany you'd wear this kind of vestment and down in sunny Italy you'd wear a lighter weight vestment or something like that. I don't know. He doesn't explain that here. Do either of you have any more insight? Go ahead, Paul Langreff. On, on the, in the Colbert Wangert edition, they have a footnote quoting the confutation and they say, they, the Lutheran princes... So this is the what the confutation the, the Roman Catholics are saying. They, the Lutheran princes, are also commended for are also commended for not regarding variety of rights as destroying unity of faith, if they mean particular rights. Mm-hmm. But if they extend this part of the confession to universal church rights, rights, this also must be utterly rejected. Yeah, and the controversy, as we're going to get into, concerns rights in the church that the Lutherans changed or reformed, and the Roman Catholics objected to this. And we'll get into that in a little bit. What changes in the Mass, particularly, particularly, uh, were considered universal rights that the Lutherans felt obligated and needed to be revised or reformed for the sake of the Gospel? That's what we're going to get into. All right, uh, Stephanie, how much time we got before the break? About two Two minutes. All right. Let's just get in this a little bit more. So he's saying that uh, uh, Melanchthon is saying that we need that what really causes the unity of the church is the righteousness of faith and um, not certain traditions or ceremonies. Warren Worth, what is the righteousness of faith that brings about the unity of the church? Obviously, we're talking about faith in Christ the righteous who uh, offered up his life on Calvary's cross, his holy precious blood, his innocent suffering and death, his glorious resurrection. And that is the basis of our righteousness before God. We stand before God declared righteous because Christ's righteousness is imputed to us when we, by faith, uh, apprehend Christ who is and what he's done for us as that is proclaimed to us in the gospel. And that's the heart of the whole matter here. So Christ's righteousness, more than man-made rights, is the central point. Indeed. This does, but we're going to raise the question, does this mean that human rights and ceremonies and traditions are unimportant and does anything go? That's the balancing act here that we're going to do. I think we got about two minutes before our break. All right. 
So it, it is this righteousness of the heart, righteousness of faith in Christ, that produces the real, true unity of the church, uh, not that we all have the same rights of, of uh, worship. All right, but that doesn't mean uh, that the rights of worship are unimportant. We get into this now in chapter in paragraph 32. We'll come back to this after the break, but let me just uh, lay this on the table. Uh, paragraph 32. The reasons why we presented this article were not small. Certainly many foolish opinions about traditions had crept into the church. Some thought that human traditions were necessary services for earning justification. Afterward, they argued how God came to be worshipped with such variety, as though these observances were acts of worship and not outward and political ordinances. Such ordinances have no connection with the righteousness of heart or the worship of God. These ordinances vary according to the circumstances for certain probable reasons, sometimes in one way and at other times in another. Likewise, some churches have excommunicated. Well, let's just pause there since we got less than a minute left. All right. So he's saying, uh, what was the problem that why we're we're presenting this article? What were some people thinking? uh, Human, why human traditions were necessary? Either one of you. Warren? Because it was, some were arguing that it would be necessary in order to earn salvation to do certain uh, ceremonies a certain way. And if you didn't do them this way, then you were not going to be able to earn your salvation. So if your idea of uh, going through a worship service, whether it's a sacrifice at the Mass or baptism or whatever, was that you're doing something to earn salvation and you have to do it and say it a certain way or you're not, it doesn't work then that would be one of the false teachings that was coming And this across. is why they, they emphasize that. We'll come back. We're in the middle of paragraph 32. Where li- you're listening to Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFUO. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Psalm 122, verse 1. Each weekday, the servants of God at the LCMS International Center gather together to receive the gifts of God in His Word. I invite you to join us weekdays, 10 a.m., for a live broadcast of daily chapel services on KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Given. It's a word we seem to hear less in our world today. We believe the Word of God as it teaches Christ is given for you. That's what we at KFUO bring you. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Find the Give Now button at kfuo.org to support this mission. kfuo.org or call 1-800-844-0524 to make your gift today. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV... 
we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Precious Bible. John Newton's hymn. Precious Bible, What a Treasure, is especially treasured at Museum of the Bible. The poem, written in Newton's own hand, is part of a 1774 copy of the King James Bible. While sailing a ship back to England, Newton's ship was hit by a fierce storm. He had an intense spiritual experience and began to study the Bible. But he continued work in the slave trade as the captain of several slave ships. He became ordained as an Anglican minister and eventually became an advocate for the abolition of the slave trade. John Newton penned over 200 hymns. Precious Bible, What a Treasure may be the least known, and Amazing Grace, his best known. I see. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. We are back on we are back on Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFO and we're having a lot of fun. And uh, I'm Pastor Charles Henriksen, your host for this program. And our guests in the studio today are Pastor Warren Worth and Pastor Paul Landgraf. We're in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Articles seven and eight, and we left off in the middle of paragraph thirty-two. And again, we welcome your comments or questions as we go along. Our toll-free number, 800-730-2727, locally in St. Louis, 314-821-0850. All right, so Melanchthon has been uh, saying here that what is necessary for the unity of the church is the righteousness of the heart, the faith in Christ, and not necessary is uh, the matter of human traditions, rites and ceremonies in the in the Mass and so forth. Uh this is uh, against the argument of the Roman Catholic theologians who were requiring uh, unity in certain rites uh, of R-I-T-E-S uh, in order for the unity of the church. And Melanchthon saying that's not essential. All right. Um, so we lay, leave off in the middle of paragraph 32. And he, he said the reason we've been emphasizing this is because some people were saying that these traditions were necessary for earning justification, which would be contrary to the gospel. And then later on in that paragraph, uh, these ordinances, these traditions vary according to the circumstances for certain probable reasons, sometimes in one way and at other times in another. Likewise, some churches have excommunicated others because of such traditions as the observance of Easter, icons, and the like. So the ignorant have imagined that faith, or the righteousness of the heart before God, cannot exist without these ceremonies. Many foolish writings of the summus and of others exist on this matter. So 
apparently in church history, and Melanchthon was well-read in church history, there were times where disagreements about when we observe Easter or whether it's right to have icons, the iconoclastic controversy, led to division in the church. Uh, either of you have some uh, background on either of those points, the observance of Easter or icons? The matter of the observance of Easter comes up a few pages later as well when uh, they, they quote what took place at the Council of Nicaea. Mm-hmm. Year 325. Exactly. And whether or not uh, they were going to continue to observe uh, Pascha, you know, uh, which you know is relates both to Passover, the Jewish feast of Passover, as well as the Christian Easter at the time that would coincide with the Jewish celebration of Passover, or they would observe it at a different time. And there was a, and, and we'll see several pages later when he talks about this, that there was a, a decree that was made that was encouraging people to do it in conjunction with Passover, so that it would be close to when, if there were Jewish converts to Christianity, that would. Uh, prefer to celebrate it then, but it was not supposed to be, uh, you weren't supposed to be legalistic about it. In other words, you were free, even if you miscalculated the date, it was still a valid thing, and it wasn't necessary unto salvation that you just do it one way or the other. But some people made it that way. They mm-hmm. became very legalistic about it, as though if you don't celebrate Easter at the right time, you're not a Christian. Yeah, in the year 325, which was the first worldwide council of the churches, because up to that point, before Constantine, uh, persecution, whether widespread or localized, prevented an above-ground meeting of all the bishops. This is the first opportunity to all of them come together and hash out. The main thing was they hashed out the Arian heresy, but one of the other items on the agenda was to come to an agreement about the observance of Easter. Some parts of the church said... Well, we're going to do it in conjunction with the Jewish Passovers, because that's the event where Christ's death and resurrection occurred, regardless of the day of the week. And others were observing it on a Sunday around that time because of the importance of Christ rising on Sunday, the first day of the week. That's the the one that sort of won out, um, and that's how we still observe Easter today. But the point is you shouldn't be kicking people out of Christianity over something like that. What about the iconoclastic controversy? Any background on that, Paul or Warren? Either one of you. Well, the, the icons were again in the in the east, the churches in the east, where the the image of the of the person was of, uh, special. Um, the saint or of Christ or some event from Christ's life. Right, and that that uh, seemed. To others, like you're, you're worshiping the the thing and not God, and so they said you had to destroy all the icons. You can't have any statuary or crucifixes or religious images. And to say that you can't have that was really going too far uh, to say that you're not a Christian if you have these things. And to this day, there are divisions within Christendom yeah. over those issues. Some people, some churches, use a great deal of art and and so forth in their churches and their worship space as something to enhance people's uh, faith and to focus people on Christ mm-hmm. and his works for us. And some Christian groups act as though there should be no yeah. uh, art. They don't even be- have hymnody. They, some groups even say you can only do the Psalms. You can't even sing a hymn. Right. Uh, kind of a puritanizing uh, 
uh, overreaction, I think. And we're not worshiping graven images. If you bow your head in reverence to the altar or a processional crucifix or something, that's not idolatry. That's uh, reverence and devotion. Okay. So he's talking about to require this is going too far. And then he says, many foolish writings of the summist. We don't have to get into that, but that that's quoting the people who were devotees of St. Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica, um, uh, sort of Roman ca- medieval Roman Catholic scholastic theologians. Correct. Right. But he doesn't, we're not diving into that. Okay. All right, so paragraph 33. Um, we believe that the true unity of the church is not injured by dissimilar ceremonies instituted by humans, such just as the dissimilar length of day and night does not injure the unity of the church. So Paul and Warren, if the true unity of the church is not injured by dissimilar ceremonies, then I guess anything goes. Is that uh, a proper <laughs> conclusion? Not so fast. <laughs> Does that mean it's unimportant what our rites and ceremonies are, Paul Landgraf? No, they're the, the certainly important. And and think of the, the weak Christian, the, as they say in different translations, the unexperienced, the, the one new in the faith, uh, when that that person can really be affected by by certain things and and we want to help that person and point them to Christ and not to ourselves so there's two ditches that you could fall in on opposite sides one is to require that all of our ceremonies must be exactly the same or else you're not a true christian and on the other side is to say anything basically goes. anything goes and it really doesn't matter since we're not bound to a particular order of the mass that we can do whatever we want uh, in frivolity and uh, whatever. And isn't it interesting that while these things seem to be opposite, they really come down to human ideas. So whether it's human traditions and so forth that we make this, it has to be this way, or it's my human ideas that I can do anything I want, but it's all getting away from the central thing, which is about God's grace, what God does what he has given us uh, in word and sacrament so that it all directs us back to Christ. And that's what we really want to do rather than our human ideas, uh, whether it's uh, a legalistic strictness of uh, ceremonies and rites on the one hand, or uh, every Sunday it changes because at my whim, uh, because I'm the pastor who's uh, the church of what's happening now. And so I get to decide what's gonna, what we're going to do because it's cool. And either way, you can fall into the ditch and you're getting away from focusing on Christ mm-hmm. and his word and his work and focusing on human emotion or human legalism. Uh, it's, it's, so it's, it's interesting how while they appear to be different, it really comes back to advancing human ideas over God's gifts and the focus on Christ. So so the balancing act here that Melanchthon does now, we get into in paragraph 33 with the however. There's our transitional word, however. However, it is pleasing to us that, for the sake of peace, universal ceremonies are kept. We also willingly keep the order of the Mass in the churches, the Lord's Day, and other more famous festival days. With a grateful mind, we include the beneficial and ancient ordinances, especially since they contain a discipline. This discipline is beneficial for educating and training the people and those who are ignorant, the young people. We are not discussing now whether it is helpful to keep them because of peace 
or bodily profit. We speak of something else. The question at hand is whether the observances of human traditions are acts of worship necessary for righteousness of God. So on the one hand, he's saying, we're saying that true unity of the church is not harmed if there's some variation in rites and ceremonies. Uh, and uh, we're saying this because that would make that necessary for righteousness with God, and that would obscure and negate the gospel. On the other hand, we willingly want to keep as much of the tradition and the order of the Mass and so on as we can uh, that extols the gospel and delivers the goods. With a very grateful mind, he says. I think think that's a significant thing, to recognize that... What a rich heritage there is in the Church Catholic, recognizing that in the in the small letter small C, C Catholic, that we have received so much. Whether you're talking about liturgy or art or hymnody or things, particularly things like the lectionary, the church year, things like this, have a really great benefit for people if you keep the focus on Christ and the work of God and the work of salvation as is portrayed by these means. Yes, and these these traditions, which they are, there's nothing in the scripture that says you have to follow this sort of a church here, but the church for many, many centuries, this has developed. This is not something flimsily constructed from week to week, but this has stood the test of time as keeping us close to our Lord and uh, keeping us to the life of Christ and uh, the main teachings of scripture and so on. So there's an order to it, um, uh, a stability, a reverence, uh, a teaching, uh, pedagogical aspect to all these things about the order of the Mass, uh, having s- service on Sunday, the Lord's Day, um, and f- festivals, major festivals like Epiphany or Ascension or uh, Good Friday and so forth. Paul, you want to comment on this? Yeah, I, I, I like how he brings in the word discipline, mm-hmm. where he, he says that it's actually a good thing. Mm-hmm. And when we hear the word discipline, oh, man, somebody's going to get hurt. <laughs> it's like the word disciple. Right, right. Uh, how could you not like being a disciple of, of, of Jesus and, and, and following him? And it's not, not going to be easy. I think we're very uh, blessed to have the brilliance of, of uh, our, as you said, our rich heritage, Warren. I think this really delivers Christ and his goods in a very wonderful way. It's the distinction between the esse and the bene esse of the church. These are Latin terms. The essential, what's essential to the church and what's good for the well-being of the church. These things are not essential. The lectionary, the church here, even having the mass on Sunday is not essential. But it's, I think, for the well-being of the church and has stood the test of time. Indeed. Keeps, yeah. keeps, it's beneficial. keeps peace in the church. It serves to educate Order. people, catechize people. And when it's rightly used, you know, it does, it's, it focuses on Christ and the gospel and benefits, again, the righteousness of God, the righteousness that avails before God, because it always directs us back to Christ, who is our righteousness. That's the whole thing we want to do. But as, as soon as you turn that on its head and make and become legalistic about it, as was the case here, and act as though if if there's... Uh, any slight variation. Any slight variation in this, that you're ready to excommunicate somebody as, as not Christian, now you've gone the wrong direction. Now, what would the Lutherans have changed in, for example, the order of the Mass? 
Well, one of the things that's going to be coming up, they'll be talking about is, for example, communion in both kinds. Meaning the both the bread and the and the cup are are offered to are offered to the laity and not 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 withheld from them absolutely so that would be one very big change right there likewise getting away from the roman catholic idea of the sacrifice of the mass in which they're saying that christ is re-sacrificed for the sins of the living and the dead Or, or in other words reversing the direction of the arrows from sacrament to sacrifice is being uh, the big thing. Right. Are we doing something for God or is he doing something for us? And again, the the biblical view is that Christ's one sacrifice atoned for all sins forever. And in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, he distributes the benefits as he gives us his body and blood to eat and to drink for the forgiveness of our sins. So here in 1531, the Lutherans had made some changes in the order of the Mass, but only where things had crept into the Mass that had obscured or denied the gospel. The Lutherans kept as much of the traditional order of the Mass as could be kept, but where it uh, had conflicted with the clear proclamation of the gospel, there they had to make a few corrections, as you've noted, that we offer communion of both kinds and that we took out the the sacrifice, the, the idea that we're making a sacrifice to God. All right, so going on that in paragraph 34, uh, the question at hand is whether the observances of human traditions are acts of worship necessary for righteousness before God. This is the point to be judged in this controversy. When this is decided, it can be judged later whether it is necessary that human tradition should everywhere be the same for the true unity of the church. For if human traditions are not acts of worship necessary for righteousness before God, it follows that those not having the traditions received elsewhere can be righteous and the sons of God as well. For example, if the style of German clothing is not worship of God and necessary for righteousness before God, it follows that people can be righteous and God's son and sons in Christ church, even though they use a costume that is not German but French. This is shocking. You mean that there are going to be non-Germans? I mean, I'm lucky as a Swede to be able to skate in. But I mean, are there going to be people other than Germans in heaven? Herr Landgraf? Shocking as it may be. <laughs> Indeed. And, and, and we, we laugh about it, but it's, often we get accused of that, don't we? You know, that unfortunately, we get accused of saying only Germans are going to heaven, only white people are going to heaven, only Lutherans are going to heaven. And so we don't claim any of those things. We do not claim that the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, is the same thing as the Lutheran Church or the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod or white people or European or people. Even, or even the Lutheran Church. I've been, you know, I, I keep up with things on the Internet about our missionaries, you know, the style of worship in Dominican Republic, where my friend Paul Flo is serving now, or Joel Fritchie or David Preuss, they do things a little bit differently. It's still reverent in their culture. Or where the church now, the Lutheran church is exploding in Africa and Asia. Uh, I've been to the church in Indonesia, uh, our fellow Lutherans there. It's a little bit different, but it's still reverent. It's holding to the basic structure of the Mass. Uh, the divine service, the word and sacrament. So it's not a problem. And actually, when you commute, if you go to services around the world, if they're following the same basic structure of the Mass, which comes from way back before Luther, that we still have, you can follow the service pretty much. I could follow it in in uh, 
Batak in Indonesia because they're using basically the same structure of the service that we use. And it's wonderful, isn't it, when you, for example, reciting the creeds of the church or the Lord's Prayer, that you can still recognize them sometimes, even if you don't speak the language. You, mm-hmm. you can pick up on the cadence and, and certain phraseology there that ju- just strikes you. Is that You can say this with people of every race and tribe and people and tongue. You yes. Know, and look forward to the fulfillment of the things in Revelation of St. John, for example, chapter 7, where you see the multitude that no one could count gathered before the throne before the lamb with white robes and, uh, mm-hmm. and robes made white in the blood of the lamb yeah that's the one costume we are all wearing is the robe made white in the blood of the lamb and that is the essential dress uh we're we're robed with christ's righteousness Amen. okay we've got a little bit of time left paragraph 35 paul clearly teaches this to the colossians therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Paul Langraff, what is uh, Paul, your namesake, what is the Paul the Apostle telling the Colossians here in this passage? Well, this is a, a sort of a famous passage because he, he brings in the the idea of the, the Sabbath too and that the, the whole change from Saturday to Sunday was a huge thing, of course, beating on Saturday for, for centuries, millennia. What about and then, food and drink? Well, that, that too. The, the Jews had particular foods to, to eat at certain times. And I guess the Roman Catholics do that still too. But it mostly the, what he's saying is those are shadow. Those are pointing to Jesus, and Jesus is the heart of it. It's not. It's not these laws. These these very small. And they've been fulfilled. The dietary laws of the of Old Testament Israel, the uh, Hebrew calendar, uh, even circum you know circumcision. These were issues in the early church. Did Gentiles have to become Jews essentially to be Christians? And what Paul is saying is they were like. I always, when I teach this in a catechesis, I, I sort of step out of the room, and then I come in through the doorway, and hopefully if the light's behind me, people will see the shadow first, which gives you kind of the shape mm, of good. things to come. But when the real person comes into the room, you don't pay attention to the shadow anymore. And so these Old Testament ceremonial laws were the shadow, they have some similarity in shape to the coming Christ, but when Christ comes... The, the shadow's already served its purpose. Absolutely. And so it, the issue in New Testament times, in the days of the apostles, there was that struggle, and there were the Judaizers who were trying to be very legalistic about it and say, you must still observe the dietary laws. You must still have circumcision. You cannot be saved if you do not do these things. And and this is what the Apostle Paul, in his letter to Colossians, in his letter to, uh, in the, to the Galatians and so forth, fights so mightily against to point out that you know, if you do that, then Christ has been crucified for nothing, and you're, you're saved by the law rather than by grace. So he really stresses that salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ means that you, you no longer need to be fussy about uh, dietary laws and these kinds of things, because the essential thing is this faith in Christ, who has fulfilled all righteousness for us, and who gives us his righteousness as a gift in the gospel. Now, we have a question that's come in from uh, one of our listeners. It doesn't say from whom, but the question is this, gentlemen. It says uh, two questions, really. Aren't symbols good in the church, and can worshiping these symbols be a temptation? 
So what do you think is meant by symbols? Can they be good in the church, and can they also be a temptation? Well, often in my catechesis, I bring this whole matter up. So let's take a crucifix, for example. You know, is a crucifix as an image in the church, is that idolatry or is it not? Well, let's even go back to the Old Testament. You know, when God, uh, in giving the Decalogue, forbid people to make graven images and to worship them, you know, that's not the same as saying that never did they use any representations of anything in their worship. For God himself commanded in the construction of the tabernacle and, and the Ark of the Covenant and all these things, and, and even in the vestments of the priests, yes. there was all kinds of imagery, symbolism, symbolism used in all of these things. And for example, in the wilderness, when uh, they had disobeyed and God sent the venomous snakes to them, and God commanded Moses to make the brazen serpent and and lift it it up on a pole so that those, when they were bit, would look to that believing in God's promise and be healed. But later on, when people offered incense to it and worshipped it as a god, then they were told to destroy it. Warren Worth, this is scary. We are having a Vulcan mind meld here. (laughs) That was exactly the example I was going to bring up uh, where the good thing became a temptation later on. And then uh, the listener quotes uh, here... Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9, which is the one about uh, teaching the, where Moses tells them to teach your children and to put it as uh, a sign on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, write them on your doorposts or your house or on your gates. And that can be done in a good way. I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood in Chicago. And if you go in an apartment building, a two flat or a three flat, you could tell which apartments were Jews living there because they'd have a little silver mezuzah on the doorpost. Go ahead. Yeah, I I think that's uh, good. Again, this balance, not going too far, but uh, uh, being helpful, these helpful signs, symbols that, that point us in the good direction and, and uh, not falling off the horse on either side. All right. And then uh, we just have a little bit of time left. I want to at least finish through paragraph 35. Uh, here Melanchthon quotes another verse. Likewise, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. And we know Luther himself had this experience as a, as a monk, this self-made religion and asceticism, as though that were the uh, essentials of religion. Um, so things like fasting, yeah. you know, you know, is, is fasting necessary into salvation? You can say on the one hand that fasting can serve a useful purpose, but if you have this idea that by fasting you are earning brownie points with God, uh, points to earn your salvation, now you've gone completely off the... Uh, the ditch and uh, to the other side. And Paul Langreff, in our last moments here, just tell again what the essence of the unity of the church is, this righteousness of faith. What is that talking about? Well, the, the, the word and the sacraments as those things point to Christ. And not to the, not to the details, not to uh, ourselves who gets in the way a lot, but to, to Jesus and the, the only savior. Yeah, he is our righteousness by his death and resurrection. We can have a good judgment uh, call or discussion on the best way to present these things, but that Christ wants us to do the word and the sacraments, that is the essential thing, because that's what Christ has instituted to deliver the gospel. You've been listening to Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFUO.